Welcome. The following presentation from Answers in CME is part of an educational activity titled Weighing Out the Risks and Benefits of Intravitreal Anti-VEGF Injections for Neovascular Age-Related Macular Degeneration. To access the full program and supporting materials, please visit the activity URL in the episode description. This activity is supported by an independent medical educational grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, Incorporated. Hi, my name is Christina Wang. I'm Professor of Ophthalmology and the Fellowship Program Director for Vitreal Retinal Diseases and Surgery at the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. I'm joined here today by my good friend and colleague, Dr. Yasha Modi. Thank you, Christina, for the warm welcome. I'm a retina specialist and uveitis specialist at New York University in New York City. It's always great doing these programs with you. Always enjoy working together, Yasha. Thanks for being here. I think you'd agree that anti-VEGF intravitreal injections have really revolutionized our field and our treatment of wet AMD, but it's always interesting interesting to me to remember that they really haven't been around for that long. We had three great options with ranibizumab, aflibercept, and bevacizumab used off-label. Some of the community now refers to these as quote-unquote first-generation anti-VEGFs. And truly, all three have demonstrated efficacy in their respective clinical trials, but also necessitated very frequent treatment. It became clear that we needed therapies that offered longer durability. That really was part of the impetus behind the emergence of drugs like brolicizumab, which allowed patients to be treated up to every 12 weeks, and ferisumab, which allowed patients to be treated as infrequently as every 16 weeks. Let's take a closer look at the latest drug to join our armamentarium, and that's ferisumab, which was approved based on two trials called Tenaya and Lucerne, which were randomized non-inferiority trials that essentially randomized treatment-naive patients with wet AMD to either ferisumab up to every 16 weeks based on protocol-defined disease activity assessments or a flibercept every eight weeks. Amongst the nearly 1,400 patients randomized, the primary endpoint was met, showing that ferisumab was indeed non-inferior to a flibercept similar decreases in central subfield thickness between the aflibercept and ferisumab arms. But what was encouraging to see is that a significant proportion of ferisumab-treated patients were able to extend to either every 12 or every 16 weeks. And in fact, the latter category was almost 45%. Another drug that we might hear about soon is high dose of flibercept, which is four times the standard dose of a flibercept. It's eight milligrams in a 0.07 cc volume. High dose of flibercept was evaluated in a trial called Pulsar, which randomized patients with treatment-naive wet AMD into three arms, either a high dose of flibercept given every 12 weeks, high dose of flibercept given every 16 weeks, or a standard two milligram of flibercept dose given every eight weeks. At 48 weeks, both high dose of flibercept arms had non-inferior best corrected visual acuity gains compared to standard of flibercept. Pulsar also showed that a greater proportion of those in the high dose of flibercept arms had absence of fluid in the central subfield at week 16. An exciting finding was that 83% of patients were able to maintain a dosing interval of every 12 weeks or greater. Dr. Wang, that's beautifully articulated. It's really important to realize that all the visual acuity benefits are more or less the same across the drugs. So the goal of getting these drugs to market was increasing durability, and that has huge implications for patients who are now coming in 
every three and four months as opposed to every four and six weeks. So I think there is a lot of value for patients who are not responding well to treatment, where we have more potent drugs where we can get potentially a better therapeutic response. And then the latter category, which is those who are on shorter intervals where we could potentially extend them. This is a really exciting time in retina and allows patients a lot more freedom, yet still maintaining regular therapy. That's a wonderful point that you make, Dr. Modi. And it really also is a testament to how high the bar has been set by our first-generation anti-VEGF agents, I totally agree that fewer injections for a patient over the course of a year really has major implications, not just in terms of their lifestyle and all the socioeconomic burdens that they carry, but also potentially with their vision, because we know that if patients can't continue these high-frequency treatments, they can lose vision, sometimes irreversibly. Our next session will discuss the safety data for anti-VEGF intravitreal injections for patients with wet AMD. In this next session, let's discuss the safety data associated with anti-VEGF agents for intravitreal injection in patients with neovascular AMD. When we think about adverse events, we're frequently talking about ocular adverse events, and this can be broken down into adverse events related to the injection, which is most common. That can include subconjunctival hemorrhage, some eye pain, which can be typically associated with the incomplete rinsing of the betadine, transient increases in intraocular pressure, and some vitreous floaters, particularly if the medication is filled in silicone lines syringes where we can get silicone oil bubbles. Some rare but serious events associated with the injection itself includes endophthalmitis. And in the sort of modern era of second generation anti-VEGF agents for paying more attention to increased rates of intraocular inflammation and the possibility of an occlusive retinal vasculitis. The good news, however, is that aflibercept, furosemab, ranibizumab, and bevacizumab have very low rates of serious ocular adverse events. But barolacizumab, even though very efficacious from an anatomic standpoint, has a rare occlusive retinal vasculitis potential, which has really sort of shaped its use to being relegated to a third or fourth line agent. When we think about furisimab, rates of adverse events were equally low between furisimab and vefliprocept, and there were also no cases of vasculitis or occlusive retinal vasculitis. It's important to realize, though, that these are rare events, and it's possible that phase three clinical trials may not have enough patients enrolled to capture these rare events. When we think about new drugs that are getting FDA approved or are soon to be FDA approved, one potential drug that's worth looking at is aflipercept 8 milligrams. If we looked at 2 milligrams versus higher doses, 8 milligrams, the rates of serious ocular adverse events were fortunately low across all three arms. Also, no cases of endophthalmitis or occlusive retinal vasculitis were seen with any of the dosing regimens. Dr. Wang, thinking about safety, how does this impact your decisions on what drugs you're going to be using? And how has brolocizumab changed your mind in terms of looking for these adverse events? It's always great to see impressive efficacy and durability, but safety always comes first. Despite the fact that brolocizumab is rarely turned to as a first-line agent at this point, as you pointed out, there were a lot of important lessons learned from its eventful post-approval journey. Perhaps one of the most important ones was that the scale of our phase three trials and ophthalmology might not be large enough to capture those rare adverse events and that active monitoring for these must continue beyond approval into the real world. And that's exactly what's happening with furisimab, where there's these large organized efforts that are evaluating safety and efficacy, which plausibly could be different for real world patients and treatment approaches that deviate from those that were studied in the trials. Dr. Wang, those are great points. For those who are listening, it's really important to realize that societies like the American Society of Retina Specialists 
us have committees that are designed for physicians to report these adverse events. So I would encourage anyone who's utilizing these medications, if you're seeing an adverse event, not only reach out to the company that's producing this drug, but also to the rest committee of the American Society of Retina Specialists. Our next session, we'll discuss adverse event management strategies for patients receiving intravitreal anti-VEGFs for neovascular AMD. In this session, we will discuss management of serious ocular adverse events associated with intravitreal anti-VEGF injections. I'd like to start off with reviewing the classic signs and symptoms that we should be watching out for in our patients treated with any anti-VEGF. These include increased floaters, photophobia or light sensitivity, decreased vision, eye pain or discomfort, photopsias or flashes, and eye redness. And while these can present two to three weeks after an injection, it's important to note that this is not a hard and fast rule and that they can really present at any time. Again, super important to look for these and tell your patients to be looking out for them as well. To make the diagnosis of IOI or intraocular inflammation, a careful slit lamp and dilated fundus examination is critical, and it's often all you need, but other ancillary imaging like OCT, fundus photographs, fluorescein angiography, and B-scan ultrasound can also be insightful. Through these modalities, you should be looking for signs like conjunctival injection, keratic precipitates, cellar flare in the anterior chamber or vitreous cavity, retinal vascular sheathing, whitening of the retina, and retinal hemorrhages. And of course, never forget to consider infectious endophthalmitis in your differential, especially if there's a hypopion. Dr. Modi, while these serious ocular adverse events are fortunately rare, we do see them simply due to the sheer number of injections that we all perform daily. How frequently have you encountered serious ocular AEs and how do you like to manage them? Dr. Wang, those are great points. When we think about inflammation in the eye, the distinguishing feature here is, is this an intraocular inflammation or is this a infection in the eye or endophthalmitis? When in doubt, I think it's critical to always treat to the most severe entity and treat treat everything as an endophthalmitis, even if we think that it's just a severe form of intraocular inflammation. So for me, that's taking a vitreous sample and injecting intravitreal vancomycin and septazidine into the eye. I've never, ever felt that was too aggressive of a strategy because if I was wrong, then I would lose considerable time in retina and obviously cost the patient some vision down the road. The timing for endophthalmitis is typically about two to seven days outside of an injection, but intraocular inflammation timings could be much more variable, occurring several weeks, even months after injections. So in those cases, if we're seeing cells in the eye and the patient doesn't have any pain, those are cases where we really do have to think about, is the inflammation related to the injection itself? And that's where those ancillary tests with OCT and FA to look for signs of vasculitis could be really helpful. I think those are some excellent pointers. Thanks, Dr. Modi. Our next session will delve into monitoring strategies for patients with wet AMD receiving intravitreal anti-VEGF injections. In this session, we will discuss the importance of monitoring patients with neovascular AMD receiving intravitreal anti-VEGF injections. When we think about AMD, the goals of anti-VEGF therapy is obviously maintaining visual acuity. In the beginning, we can frequently get a bump in visual acuity, then we get to a subsequent plateau, and the goal is stabilization. So all of our patients are aware of the fact that they're going in to get an injection, primarily to maintain the visual acuity that they have. And the way that we do this is frequently by maintaining an absence of intraretinal fluid and subretinal fluid based on our OCT examination. Now, while we're treating one eye, perhaps for neovascular AMD, 
it's really important that we're monitoring not only the neovascular AMDI, but also maybe the other eye that has intermediate AMD. And when we're in the office, every single time I'm getting visual acuity testing and they're getting OCTs of their macula. So here are some of the devices, obviously an AMSA grid, easy enough to find it online or print it out. The 4C home device is an FDA approved device looking specifically at patients with intermediate AMD, looking for conversion to exudative AMD. And when we think about our future, these may be patients who have neovascular AMD and are now using home OCT monitoring to help us define better our treatment intervals. So Dr. Wang, we've discussed a lot of monitoring strategies that are designed to evaluate for progression of disease, but we've also been talking about adverse events. What are your strategies both at home and in the office to follow patients? One thing that I am very keen to do is make sure that I'm evaluating the patient regularly. A lot of us will utilize injection-only visits, which I think is fine with the sheer number of patients that we have to see over the course of a day, but I do make sure that routinely I am looking at the patient eye with a slit lamp or dilated examination from time to time, especially if they're symptomatic, especially if they've had a change in their vision. From an at-home perspective, we really do rely heavily on our patients to also help us detect any adverse events or any signs of disease recurrence. I review all of the return precautions with them as well as their caretakers in depth so that they understand when to return and when to be concerned. At-home technologies, whether it's Amsler Grid, 4C Home, or the Home OCT, they're also going to really enhance our ability to to monitor these patients, not only for safety issues, but also for potential disease recurrence. Dr. Wayne, those are all incredible points. For our next session, we will discuss dosing strategies used with intravitreal anti-VEGF injections for patients with neovascular AMD. In this session, we'll discuss the available dosing strategies for intravitreal anti-VEGF agents for the treatment of patients with wet AMD. Let me start off here with an overview of the current treatment regimens that we use and some of the advantages and drawbacks. First, we have the classic fixed dosing, which is how all patients were originally treated when anti-VEGFs first came onto the market. Fixed dosing means that the patient comes in on a regular basis, often monthly, irregardless of their vision or OCT findings. And this has been shown to lead to the best visual outcome but it also carries a heavy treatment burden. PRN, or as needed, in its purest form is an approach where the patients present monthly, but only receive treatment based on OCT and sometimes vision criteria. PRN attempts to personalize treatment for the patient while decreasing the treatment burden for those who don't require as frequent of injections. However, it's still a substantial visit burden with the patient coming into the office 12 or 13 times a year. In the real world, many use a modified PRN approach where patients might not come in monthly for evaluation. Unfortunately, as we've seen from several studies, this has led to suboptimal visual acuity outcomes. As a result, we've sort of come to a middle ground with treat and extend. It's sort of the marriage, if you will, of the other two. And it tries to also personalize the treatment regimen while reducing both the treatment and the visit burden. So patients are treated at every visit, but depending on disease activity, their next interval is either extended or contracted, typically by two or four weeks. Dr. Modi, I'm going to turn it to you. Which of these dosing strategies do you employ most frequently and why? I think treat and extend is a very good one, but it's important to realize that we have to be very regimented about extending intervals. And when you look at clinical trials, like for instance, Tanai and Lucerne, while over 50% got out to 16 weeks by two years, 22% of those patients stayed on an every eight-week interval. So not everybody's going to extend out. 
And I think it's really important to realize that some patients just need high treatment burden and some patients may require less frequently. And this allows us that opportunity to very much tailor the interval to their treatment burden. It's a great point, Dr. Modi. Now that we have farisimab that can extend up to every 16 weeks and potentially high dose of flibercept coming later on this year that also can extend to a similar interval, how are you approaching patients who are on these newer drugs or might be on a newer drug that could be approved later on? Are you following the protocols that were studied in the trials? The classical treatment extend, the extension window was two weeks, but in Tanai and Lucerne, they sort of increased that to every four weeks. Remember, these are treatment-naive patients. So when you're extending them, they also had windows in which they could be reduced. So I'm still not utilizing the sort of Tanaya and Lucerne model to go and extend patients. They needed to get out every 16 weeks in order to show durability to the FDA at their one-year primary outcome. In real world, we could do that potentially in a more conservative fashion. So I still do every two-week extensions. And when it comes to patients where maybe I've switched them from one drug to one of these second-generation drugs, I may be even less conservative and do one-week extensions. Well, Dr. Modi, thank you so much for your incredible insights. We covered a great deal today. It is a really exciting time, and we do have a lot of really promising agents coming down the pipeline, and we look forward to what the future holds for our patients. It's a great time to be a retina specialist. Thank you for listening. Please visit the activity URL in the episode description to view all program materials, complete the post-test, and get a certificate.